this episode, we continue to look at the principles of freedom 101, 28 principles that our founders laid out in the book, The 5,000 Year Leap. Let's get into the principles number five through eight. Principle number five, the role of the Creator. All things were created by God. Therefore, upon Him all mankind are equally dependent, and to Him they are equally responsible. The reality of a divine Creator. The founders vigorously affirmed throughout their writings that the foundation of all reality is the existence of the Creator, who is the designer of all things in nature and the promulgator of all laws which govern nature. The founders were in harmony with the thinking of John Locke, as expressed in his famous essay concerning human understanding. Locke felt that a person who called himself an atheist is merely confessing that he has never dealt with the issue of the Creator's existence. Therefore, to Locke, an atheist would be, to that extent, irrational and out of touch with reality. In fact, out of touch with the most important and fundamental reality. How can one know there is a God? In his essay concerning human understanding, John Locke insisted that everyone can know there is a divine creator. It is simply a case of thinking about it. To begin with, each person knows that he exists. Furthermore, each person knows that he is something He also knows that a something could not be produced by a nothing. Therefore, whatever brought man and everything else into existence also had to be something. This something would therefore have to be superior to everything which had resulted from this effort. Getting to know God. Man is capable of knowing many things about God, Locke said. The Creator must of necessity be cognitive. Being for man is a cognitive being. Certainly a non-cognitive being, like a rock, could never have produced a cognitive being like a man. We may also know that Divine Creator has a sense of compassion and love, for He gave mankind these sublime qualities. The Creator would also reflect a fine sense of right and wrong. 
These are other attributes of man which human beings must necessarily share with their creator if man is made in the image of God. So, as John Locke says, there are many things man can know about God, and because any thoughtful person can gain an appreciation and conviction of these many attributes of the Creator, Locke felt that an atheist has failed to apply his divine capacity for reason and observation. Concerning God's revealed law, distinguishing right from wrong, the founders considered the whole foundation of a just society to be structured on the basis of God's revealed law. These laws constituted a moral code clearly distinguishing right from wrong. This concept was not new with the founders. This was the entire foundation of all religious cultures worldwide. It was practically emphasized in the Judeo-Christian structure of the English law. No authority on the subject was more widely read than William Blackstone. 1723-1780. In his commentaries on the laws of England, Blackstone pondered the generally accepted idea that when the Supreme Being formed the universe, he organized it in and then impressed certain principles upon that matter, from which it can never depart, and without which it could cease to be. He then went on to say that the will of God, which is expressed in the orderly arrangement of the universe, is called the law of nature, and that there are laws of human nature just as surely as they exist for the rest of the universe. He said the laws of human nature had been revealed by God, whereas the laws of the universe, natural law, must be learned through scientific investigation. Blackstone stated that upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation depend on depend all human laws the nearness of God it also is important to note that the founders did not look upon God as some mysterious theological force operating automatically and differently in nature but they believed in a creator who is both intelligent and benevolent and therefore anxious and able to respond to people's petitions 
when they are deserving of needed blessing and in a good cause. George Washington, after being elected president, Washington stressed these sentiments in his first inaugural address when he said, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the charter of the independence nation seem to have been distinguished by some token of provincial agency. James Madison The real wonder is that so many difficulties should have been surmounted with a unanimity almost as unprecedented as it must have been unexpected. It is impossible for any man of candor to reflect on this circumstance without partaking of the astonishment. It is impossible for the man of pious reflection not to perceive in it a finger that almighty hand which has been so frequently and signally extended to our relief in the critical stages of the revolution. In God we trust, from all of this it will be seen that the founders are not indulging in any idle gesture. They adopted the model in God we trust. So the sixth principle, it's one of the most important principles in my opinion. And we aren't going to dive into a lot of the sixth principle because I want you guys to go and get this book and read it several times in its entirety. Understand the words that are presented here. And then you can dive deeper into the sixth principle. The sixth principle. All men are created equal. The founders wrote in the Declaration of Independence that some truths are self-evident. And one of these is the fact that all men are created equal. Yet everyone knows that no two human beings are exactly alike in any respect. They are different when they are born. They plainly exhibit different natural skills. They acquire different tastes. They develop along different lines. They vary in physical strength, mental capacity, emotional stability, inherited social status, in their opportunities for self-fulfillment, and in scores of other ways, then how can they be equal? 
the answer is they can't. Except in three ways. They can only be treated as equals in the sight of God, in the sight of the law, and in the protection of their rights. In these three ways, all men are created equal. It is the task of society, as it is with God, to accept people in their vast array of individual differences, but treat them as equals when it comes to their role as human beings. As members of society, all persons should have their equal guaranteed in two areas. First, equality before the law. Second, equality of rights. So, constitutional amendments to ensure equal rights. After the Constitution was adopted in 1789, Americans added four amendments to make certain that everyone, including racial minorities, could enjoy equal rights. These amendments are as follows. The 13th Amendment to provide universal freedoms. The 14th Amendment to provide universal rights of citizenship. The 15th and the 19th Amendments to provide universal voting rights regardless of race, color, or sex. The seventh principle, the proper role of government is to protect equal rights, not provide equal things. In Europe, during the days of the founders, it was very popular to proclaim that the role of government was to take from the haves and to give to the have-nots, so that all might be truly equal. However, the American founders perceived that the proposition contained a huge fallacy. What powers can be assigned to government? The founders recognized that the people cannot delegate to their government the powers to do anything except which they have the lawful right to do themselves. For example, every person is entitled to protection of his life and property. Therefore, it is perfectly legitimate to delegate to the government the task of setting up a police force to protect the lives and the property of all the people. But suppose a kind-hearted man saw that one of his neighbors had two cars while the other neighbor had none. What would happen if, in a spirit of benevolence, the kind man went over and took one of the cars from the neighbor and generously gave it to the other neighbor? in need. 
Obviously, he would be arrested for car theft, no matter how kind his intentions. He is guilty and of flagrantly violating the natural rights of his prosperous neighbor. Who is entitled to be protected in his property? Of course, the two-car neighbor could donate a car to his poor neighbor if he liked but that is his decision, not the right of the pre-kind-hearted pre neighbor who wanted to play Robin Hood. A lesson from communism. When the communists seized power in Hungary, the peasants were delighted with the justice of having the large farms confiscated from their owners and given to the peasants. Later, the communist leaders seized three-fourths of the peasants' land and took it back to set up government communal farms. Immediately, the peasants howled in protest about their property rights. Those who protested too loudly or too long soon found that they not only lost land, but also their liberty. If they continued to pr protest, they lost their lives. Equal rights doctrine protects the freedom to prosper. The American founders took a different approach. Their policy was to guarantee the equal protection of all the people's rights and thus ensure that all would have the freedom to prosper. The founders felt that, the, that America would become a nation dominated by a prosperous middle class with a few people becoming rich. As for the poor, the important thing was to ensure the freedom to prosper so that no one would be locked into the poverty level the way people have been in all other parts of the world. The idea was to maximize prosperity, minimize poverty, and make the whole nation rich. Hard work, frugality, thrift, and compassion became the key words in the American ethic. This brings us to the eighth principle and our final principle of this episode. Men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The founders did not believe that the basic rights of mankind originated from any social compact, king, emperor, or governmental authority. Those rights, they believed, came directly and exclusively from God. When is a right unalienable? The substantive nature of those rights 
which are inherent in all mankind, was described by William Blackstone in his commentaries on the law of England. Those rights, then, which God and nature have established, and are therefore called natural rights, such as are life and liberty, need not the aid of human law to be more effectively invested in every man, then they are, neither do they receive any additional strength when declared by the municipal laws to be invocable. On the contrary, no human legislator has power to abridge or destroy them unless the owner shall himself commit some act that amounts to a forfeiture. In other words, we may do something ourselves to forfeit the unalienable rights endowed by the Creator, but no one else can take those rights from us without being subject to God's justice. This is what makes certain unalienable rights unalienable. The founders did not list all of the unalienable rights. It's impossible to. When the fathers adopted the Declaration of Independence, they emphasized in phrases very similar to those of Blackstone that God has endowed all mankind with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let us identify some of the unalienable or natural rights which the founders knew existed but did not enumerate in the Declaration of Independence. Here they go. The right of self-government. The right to bear arms for self-defense. The right to own, develop, and dispose of property. The right to make personal choices. The right of free conscience. The right to choose a profession. The right to choose a mate, the right to beget one's kind, the right to assemble, the right to petition, the right of free speech, the right to a free press, the right to enjoy the fruits of one's labor, the right to improve one's position through barter and sell, the right to contrive and invent. The right to explore the natural resources of the earth. The right to privacy. The right to provide personal security. The right to provide nature's necessities. Air, food, water, clothes, shelter. The right to a fair trial. The right of free association. The right to contract. Many founders used similar language, emphasizing unalienable rights, property rights essential to the pursuit of happiness. Some scholars have wondered just what Jefferson meant by the pursuit of happiness. 
but the meaning of this phrase was well understood when it was written. Perhaps John Adams said it even more clearly. All men are born free and independent and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring and possessing and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. So we can see by these understandings what our founding fathers meant by unalienable rights. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the 28 principles outlined in the 5,000 year leap. Please make sure you go over, get a copy of this and read it for yourselves and join us next time for the next four outlined principles of the 28.